Welcome to Bismarck State College's Humanities in Person podcast. My name is Kim Crowley. I'm an associate professor of English here at BSC. And today I'm talking with Kiku Hughes, who is the author and illustrator of a graphic novel called Displacement. Displacement is the 2022 BSC campus read selection. And so we are talking to Kiku today about her, about the book, about the process, about what inspired her and about anything else that comes up. Thank you so much for joining us, Kiku. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So we'll start out at the beginning. I'm sure uh, as an author, you maybe get a little bit uh, used to answering this question. Please <laughs> tell, please tell our listeners about your inspiration for the book and what got you started on the journey that became displacement. Yeah, there were, you know, a lot of moving parts that sort of all came together to uh, create this book. Um, it was a story uh, that I'd wanted to tell for a while. And that was, you know, the story of my grandmother's time and her experience in incarceration camps as a Japanese American. Um, but because, you know, my grandmother had died before I was born um, and because I lacked a lot of uh, knowledge about the, you know, details of the incarceration camps, I never really knew how I would tell that story. So it was always sort of in the back of my mind. Um, but I, I, I wasn't sure exactly how to, how to, tell it until I um, went to an event actually sponsored by the Seattle Public Library and a group called Densho, um, which is an archival group that focuses on Japanese American incarceration stories. And they put on an event back in 2016 that was really focusing on the afterlife of um, Japanese wartime incarceration. Um, and sort of the, the lasting impact that incarceration had on the community and what we can sort of learn from it um, as we sort of uh, navigate political climates in the modern era that mirror that uh, climate that caused Japanese American incarceration. Um, so in 2016, of course, the presidential campaign was very uh you know divisive i guess you could say right Um, the issues and these these issues of uh who can be trusted uh who's uh, sort of othering them and us and othering those those became very big topics of discussion yeah and in the japanese american community especially people were really realizing you know there's a lot of people who don't necessarily know the full story of Japanese American incarceration and um, and there's a lot of reasons for that but one of the things that you know the community decided that we had to do um, was sort of be more vocal and tell these stories more and in different ways in ways that really linked the past to the present and made people understand um, sort of how these, you know, moments of racist vitriol that that occur that sort of create this, you know, othering and um, create a scapegoat for certain situations, uh, you know, what that lasting impact can look like. Um, 
in a, you know, and, and for the Japanese American community specifically, um, you know, it felt like a moral obligation because it, it is one of the few times that, uh, sort of the U S government has apologized for one of their actions, um, was the, uh, the 1980s redress of, you know, acknowledging that the Japanese American incarceration was wrong. Um, and so it sort of made the Japanese American community uh, feel like there's a sort of a responsibility to remind the government again and again, you know, you, you have said that this was wrong, um, so you can't do it again. <laughs> and, and if I can, if I can jump off from that, one of the things that I have heard you talk about in relation to the book and in relation to um, the history of the camps and, and reminding people of the camps, keeping that from disappearing into the ether of shared memory, um, is actually, this was very interesting, the the terminology for the camps, the what they get labeled. Uh, I, I kind of dislike the idea of labeling people or things, but <laughs> just what do you meant to call them? And and you brought up this really interesting point about debate even now because of history that has happened since and before and in the interim. And so could you please talk about the about your choice of what to call the camps and even some of the debate that comes up even in your own family um, about <laughs> what what is the appropriate thing to call the camps? Yeah, so it's so interesting, sort of the way that language uh, changes and, uh, you know, changes our view of things. So uh, the camps were originally called evacuation camps um, when they were happening. The government called them that because uh, the sort of the notion was that they were protecting Japanese Americans um, from vigilante groups on the West Coast. Um, there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment and the government... Um, sort of framed it as a, a means of, of protecting this community. Now, obviously, we know that that's not what their real motivation was, um, but at the time, that's what they called it. Um, later, the term um, uh, internment camp became uh, more popular, and that was the term that I grew up hearing. Um, and, you know, I never questioned it until I started researching for this book and, you know, read a lot of essays about uh, from Japanese American scholars and, and you know, so, social scientists and stuff that were saying that the internment camp is actually in, incorrect in a technical sense because the, the sort of definition of an internment camp is uh, a government-run camp for enemy during times of war. And so the implication there is that people in these camps were enemy aliens when in fact uh, around two-thirds of the people taken to camp were American citizens born in the U.S. Um, and so it, it's again sort of an othering effect that it has even by calling them internment camps sort of implying that everyone taken was not uh, an American. So uh, you know there's been debate since then about what to call them because technically what they would be called uh in the most literal sense, is a concentration camp, which is, by definition, a camp that a, a government uses to take its own citizens and uh, to, you know, incarcerate its own citizens. Well, and um, as but because you described uh, that with Nazi Germany, then concentration camp brings with it its own set of complications. 
Exactly. Um, yeah, because uh, you know what what the Nazis had set up in in Europe were were technically death camps. They were you know with the intent of of killing huge amounts of very you know, sections of the population, um, and and so by calling those death camps concentration camps, uh, it sort of changed that definition and in a way that almost uh, sanitized it. Uh, so that, you know, people in the U.S. didn't have the full grasp of what was happening in Europe even um, because, you know, those camps were set up with the pure intent to, to murder, um, whereas, you know, a concentration camp at its sort of, in its literal definition, isn't, you know, expressly meant to murder the population. Um, so, so all of that to say, uh, the term that I have sort of settled on is incarceration camp, which um, isn't perfect. <laughs> said, uh, there's sort of debate even within my family. My mom does not like that phrase um, because she, she believes, and I, and I, I understand why, um, but she thinks it, it makes it seem like people were charged with a crime when, of course, they never were. Um, right, right, so, right. Yeah, so there's no perfect way to, to describe it because language has changed so much in a series of sort of pacifying words that have never quite uh, fully encapsulated the the truth of what happened either in the Nazi death camps or in the uh, Japanese-American concentration camps. It Tying in, I'm, I want to I want to bring the humanities in um, to tie into the the whole purpose behind this as well. Your book is all about the humanities. You've got the you've got writing, you've got art, you've got history. Um, there's even music. Um, spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book yet: the violin plays a very important role in displacement. So there's a lot of humanities uh, related. Uh, pieces that come into displacement. Kiku, can you talk about um, experiences, when you think about your experiences with the humanities in school or outside of school, how, how, what, what kinds of influences did your experiences with humanities classes studies have on the book, on displacement as a process, as an idea, as a finished product? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was actually, I was an English uh, literature major in college. Um, so that was always my, my favorite class was, you know, reading books and talking about books, <laughs> writing essays about books was always sort of my passion. Um, and, and so I, I really credit those classes with sort of giving me the tools I needed to actually start writing, which was not something I ever thought I would be doing. Um, I never considered myself a writer, really. But um, I think, you know, when you read a, a lot of books, it kind of helps to pave that way. Mm -hmm. um, but particularly a class that I took in, in college, one of my um, English classes, uh, we read a book by Octavia Butler called Kindred, mm -hmm. um, which is an incredible book. She, uh, you know, it's this she was an incredible uh, sci-fi author that actually was also from the Seattle area. And um, in this book, uh, you know, she writes about a black woman in the seventies who is sort of pulled back in time to the antebellum South to a plantation where her ancestors were enslaved. 
And, um, you know, she takes it in a very different uh, direction. And hers is much more, um, uh, you know, the time travel element of, of Kindred is a lot more of that sort of, uh, it deals with the paradoxes and things like that mm-hmm. um, in a really interesting way. And, uh, but I read that for one of my, you know, humanities classes mm-hmm. and it sort of blew my mind at the time because I didn't realize that science fiction, like tropes, and I'd always loved science fiction, but, you know, as sort of a fun thing, but, mm-hmm. but Octavia Butler took that trope of time travel and gave it so much meaning and sort of, uh, like layers of understanding it she does that with every every sort of book that she wrote um you know she took these sci-fi tropes and really turned them into these rich like heavy subjects it's amazing well and it's great i'm glad you brought up um sci-fi in my classes when we read literature um i always bring my students into uh, a discussion of the canon the literary canon and one of the Mm -hmm. things that comes up of course is the fact that science fiction is usually underrepresented underrepresented in the canon um and and students a lot of my students you know obviously sci-fi is for all ages but i think it tends to draw a younger audience in especially and so students are they look through whatever canonical lists we're examining and they don't see a lot of sci-fi there's also of course the classic arguments that we have about the you know some of the lack of representation of of diverse populations um Mm -hmm. and that brings me i was going to ask you graphic novels of course i'm an english teacher i think they're literature um but (laughs) what kinds of what kinds of you're not going to see graphic novels on pretty much any of the classic lists of canonical literature. So talk about that in whatever way you wish. What uh, did you, have you received any pushback? Um, Have you uh, had a a lot of very welcoming people who are, who talk about this as literature, um, just kind of your experiences with it? Because graphic novels, of course, have been around for a very long time, but they seem new to us. So please talk about that. Yeah. Um, oh man, there's so much I can talk about because <laughs> um, I, I certainly, you know, growing up, especially graphic novels were not really on my radar because, like you said, they they weren't really included in, in a lot of you know of my classes and a lot of the book lists that we got. Um, you know, a lot of them focus on prose literature, on mm-hmm. uh, you know, traditional prose novels, and. Um, I think the first graphic novel I really read was Persepolis, which mm-hmm. um, uh, Satrapi. Um, that was actually one of our campus read selections at BSC. I won't be able to remember the year, but um, <laughs> since since the inception of campus read, that was one of the uh, that was one of the selections that came up. That's awesome! It's You're in good an company. Incredible graphic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, but even at the time when I was reading it in high school, uh, you know, I didn't really consider the fact that it was a comic as, you know, a. Uh, I, I, I didn't think about what that meant um, to be reading this information. I, when I get that sort of question, 
now about displacement specifically, you know, why would you use a graphic novel to tell this, you know, kind of heavy story? Um, I, I always like to point out that, you know, the first book that was published by a Japanese American author about their experience in camp um, was a book uh, called Citizen 13660 by Mina Okubo. And uh, she was a, an artist, an illustrator in her early 20s, um, and was actually taken to the same camps as my grandmother, uh, Tanferan and Topaz. And she decided to sort of keep a visual diary of her experience. And she drew, you know, the, the places that they were in. She drew the community members. She drew her experiences and then sort of accompanied the little caption description. Um, and, and that was what the novel or the published book became. And it was a comic book in a sense. Um, you know, it had these drawings and the text to support the drawings and that's you know what the book is and so the very foundational text of telling this story um really started as a comic and and i i always like to bring that up because that book is not only you know a beautiful work of literature but it's also an incredibly important historical document um that i used extensively in my research because she was able to record things that you know, you don't have photographs of. Um, and she was able to record the emotions that people wouldn't feel comfortable uh, expressing on a camera. Um, she could take that community's sort of those feelings that she saw and experienced um, and, and translate them in a visual way that is just impossible to do with, with photography. There's so much, I mean, there's feeling that goes with photography. I don't mean to say it doesn't, but there's so, um, there's so much feeling that goes with the, with the images coming out of your hand as the, as the words come out of your mouth. There's that, there's that very strong connection that goes with that as well. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, the inmates or I should say incarcerates <laughs> that were, taken um weren't allowed to have cameras because it was considered dangerous spy 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 gear i guess mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so the photographs that we have especially of the early days of camp are all taken by government photographers um and and merely just sort of knowing that it kind of makes those photographs you know have a political agenda and have mm -hmm. a limitation because they can't necessarily capture the true feelings of the community. Um, and, and that's where the artists that were incarcerated really came in because they were able to record these things um, and these feelings in, the, uh, in, in visual ways that we would not have any access to. So I want to, speaking of, of, of what comes, you know, the drawing and the writing, um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the process. I have, of course, a lot of students who have grown up, first year, second year college students have have pretty much grown up typing their papers on computers, uh, you know, typewriters. A lot of students know, you know, obviously they know what they are, but they haven't used them. And writing longhand <laughs> is, I, I do have students who, who still prefer to draft things longhand, but not many. So, if you don't mind, would you give us a little insight into your process when you're writing this book and 
uh, just a tiny bit of a nudge. I understand you're working on something else that maybe you could <laughs> share a little bit, uh, give us a little bit of a sneak peek on that. Do you write, how do you, how do you put this all together? What, what do you, when you start, whether it's, with, do you start with the text? Do you start with the images? How do you put this all together? Yeah. Um, Displacement was kind of unique for me because so much of it was, you know, research-based. So for that one, I spent a huge amount of time just researching. Um, but but for there, from there, I I do start with the text. I like to outline the entire story first, mm -hmm. um, and, and then I sit with that outline for too long and <laughs> think about it and redo it over and over again. <laughs> um, and and from there, I like to start the script, but um, I, I usually sort of go back and forth between uh, the script phase and, and what's known as thumbnails, which is basically the outline of, of the book uh, in visual form. So uh, before you sort of sit down to draw a comic, you have to really know what you're going to draw. And, um, and in order to do that, you create a a series of thumbnails, which are just tiny little uh, layout, uh, page layouts, I guess you could say, um, that sort of show the entire book in one little, uh, well, not one, I guess. The entire book is sort of drawn as a tiny little sketch first, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Almost Sorry, like tiles. So you just sort of have stick figures and it's really there for arranging the panels and understanding where everything's going to fit. Um, and so the thumbnail stage is, is hugely important and I like to do it sort of simultaneously with the final script um, because so much of how I write the script depends on how I'm going to draw it. So those two sort of have to play together. Um, and I usually like to... Uh, write, type the script, uh, and then sort of doodle the thumbnails in pencil as I go, um, and then later sort of uh, translate those doodles into actual page layouts on the computer. Um, yeah. <laughs> lots of recur very recursive process. Yeah, lots of uh, going back and changing and redoing everything. <laughs> Which is uh, how much... If you can give me a sense of how much changes versus gets fine-tuned in the second or third pass-by, do you come up with some complete new uh, piece of the story that you're going to add? Or is that pretty much in that first outline and just gets smoothed out? It really depends, um, but I find honestly that the first outline, uh, it's so much easier to just get everything out completely unedited. So it's usually kind of um, terrible at first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like to make major changes after I've let it sit for a little while. Um, and I can't, I wish I could remember some of the big ones um, that I changed in displacement. Because um, there were certainly moments where I would have this, you know, big, stumbling block that I had mm -hmm. to sit with for a week or two before I could figure out how to go forward with it, what I needed to change. Um, but unfortunately, it's been so long <laughs> <laughs> for that one. 
Well, and you are you are continuing to write. I don't mean to push you too much to give away anything that's coming up, but you do you are working on another project. You've got some other things that uh, that you'll be unveiling. Yeah, I'm I'm in writing process um, for what will hopefully be the my second graphic novel. Um, and yeah, it's it's going to be uh, certainly less historically focused, but um, sort of about uh, the way that technology and tech companies um, interact with us and, and affect our lives in the most broad terms. Sounds like also still sort of verging into that arena of, of at least considering science technology, that, that kind of science fiction-esque idea of how we interact with the technology around us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sci-fi is sort of my my favorite genre, always has been. Um, and I, you know, I kind of want to delve into that uh, genre a little bit more. But this, uh, this sort of bridging the gap between, you know, a very historic, historically focused and sort of um, rooted in real events and then uh, sort of trying to bridge the gap from that novel to more science fiction focused so if that makes sense oh it's wonderful it's wonderful I I know of course I'll be looking forward to seeing it um, a lot of the people who have been reading displacement will be waiting for it to come out and and so it'll be lovely to see you it's displacement is a is a great book and it is um persepolis was the campus read before i arrived at bismarck state college and so displacement is my first graphic novel it's the first well, one that i really dug into it was great it was a lovely first experience I really appreciate that. That's very kind. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Kiku. Um, Displacement, uh, the book that was our campus read for 2022 here at BSC. Um, I know this podcast, the idea behind podcasts is that they go into perpetuity, but our bookstore does have Displacement. So when you hear this um I bet they will still have some copies on hand. So um, if you have not read the book yet, uh, recommend it. Go get it. It's a, it's a lovely, lovely read, lovely project. Kiku Hughes, thank you so very much for uh, talking with me today and sharing your experiences with us and, and with displacement here on campus. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so great.